We've been working on Create the Village for some time. Both the design and production of this podcast predated the COVID-19 crisis. However, we decided to push pause for the moment on the original show design so that we could launch the podcast and focus on some of the ways that COVID-19 is affecting community development. We're honoring the social distancing protocol, so you'll notice that we're conducting interviews by phone and with Zoom. We're doing what we can to stay safe. I hope you are too. I am Egbert Perry, and this is Create the Village. From small towns to large metropolitan areas, conversations are beginning to focus on the scope and scale of COVID-19. Specifically, focus is turning to the impact on state and local governments. A headline in the Monitor of McAllen, Texas this week read, Local cities preparing for sharp sales tax declines. And in another headline in the Atlanta Daily Newspaper, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, we read, Atlanta mayor projects $35 to $40 million revenue loss due to virus. With economic activity at a virtual standstill, state and local tax revenues are expected to crash. Local governments will be forced to turn to reserves they've set aside, but those monies were never intended to cover government operations over an extended period, in most cases 60 to 90 days. So the cash will not last long. Rhode Island recently said the state is, quote, weeks, not months, from running out of cash due to COVID-19. My name is Egbert Perry, and I'm the founder and CEO of The Integral Group, and this is Create the Village, a podcast that provides a platform where leaders from the private, public, and nonprofit sectors come together to speak candidly about the challenges facing American cities. As the fiscal conditions worsen, state and local governments will likely look to Washington, D.C. for assistance. But in an election year, and in the wake of trillions that Congress has already committed, the certainty of such a federal bailout before the election is up in the air. An opinion piece published in the D.C. paper, The Hill, this week reads, quote, The only answer for states, counties, and cities that want to survive is to slash budgets now, probably 30 to 50 percent, eliminate all non-essential spending, and reduce taxes today. End of quote. Regardless of how draconian that sounds, without an alternative strategy, it's likely that state and local services will be impacted and possibly cut. Additional state and municipal employees will likely be laid off or furloughed. And before long, there will be calls to increase local and state taxes. Regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, we can agree that this is a massive and complex national setback that is testing our health, economic, and social systems. Reading the piece from The Hill reminded me of a statement attributed to the libertarian and Nobel laureate economist Milton Friedman. Only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. Fortunately, 
there's an idea that has been lying around for some time, and we should take a serious look at it. Like the federal strategies deployed during the Great Depression, major public works programs in 2020 and 2021 will create sustained economic activity, put people to work, generate sales taxes, and most importantly, address problems we were facing before COVID-19 appeared on the scene. Eric Litzinger is the founder and CEO of Quantified Ventures. In what seems like a long time ago, Eric co-authored a commentary in Barron's that published March 25th, making him an early forecaster of the negative impacts of COVID-19 on local and state governments, and a voice providing recommendations on mitigating the impending economic blow. Eric works in a field where the results of his work are often nuanced and not as immediately evident in conventional terms as straight commercial transactions. But he has been very successful in his field, and I was curious to learn how he goes about figuring out where he recommends government leaders invest their time and energy. I wanted to understand what he would recommend the White House and Congress do to assist city and state governments. What happens if there is no federal response? And what role infrastructure investments could play in staving off an economic downturn? Here's our conversation. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing mighty fine. A pleasure to be on the phone with you today. Same here. Eric, first let me say thank you so much for your time today. This should be good. Uh, what we're trying to do as we're thinking about who would be good parties to talk to and hear from in this early stages of the podcast, we wanted to look at things that really were impactful. And, you know, we, we tend to think that in the business that Integral does, we transform communities and so on and so forth, that we're doing some stuff that the average person doesn't really understand and you have to break it down for them. Well, I think that's difficult. Making sound impact investments is extremely difficult and in the way the work you do is complicated to say to say it mildly. And as a result is not often evident to in conventional terms to say how things are um, performing, what the returns are, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I've always been fascinated. How do you make the case to potential investors and entice them to participate in a particular initiative that you're proposing to to pursue? How do you how do you go about breaking it down and making it digestible to whether it's philanthropy or regular capital? to try and interest them in investing? Sure, that's a great question. I mean, let's hear. We, we at Quantified Ventures, we are an outcomes-based capital firm, which I recognize is a mouthful. Uh, but we look for uh, projects that drive compelling outcomes um, that we can figure out ways to measure uh, those outcomes reliably. With the growing source of capital out there, deeply growing source of capital that's looking to get their investment dollars connected directly to the delivery of outcomes and real impact. We don't have a capital shortage issue, but most 
projects are not currently designed, structured to very rigorously predict the social, environmental, or health outcomes that they're designed to hit. And then most of those projects, even if they do a rigorous job of predicting those outcomes, they're not designed to absorb the costs associated with measuring whether those outcomes uh, were achieved or not, whether the impact actually happened. Uh, at Quantified Ventures, what we're trying to do is connect those two things and say, listen, we've got no shortage of resilience projects, for example, that need to be put on the ground, uh, put on the field across the United States to address big tectonic shifts like climate change. But those projects bring with them a, a real or perceived risk profile because we're doing a lot of new and innovative things to address the resilience challenges that municipalities are facing. So by bringing in capital that's willing to have their return on investment be driven by whether that project, that resilience project, actually performed the way the engineers intended it to, it, the time is now for that model to thrive, given the appetite of investors to have to put their money where their mouth is in terms of being amenable to their return on investment being connected directly to whether outcomes were achieved or not. That's messy work, but it's work that we enjoy. So, so uh, Eric, with that, does, do you think that the current crisis, the coronavirus crisis, will distract us or focus us more on paying attention to making those kinds of investments? It, it, that's the $64,000 question. Uh, I'm an optimist by nature, and I I think for those of us who are inflicted with the optimism disease are hopeful that these are times that make us recognize that we can solve big problems. We can solve big challenges. And the solutions are not intuitive, and but they're doable. If you had told everybody a month ago that we'd all be in our houses and not not engaging with our neighbors and standing six feet apart because that's the solution that's needed uh, to get this many humans to perform like that is was unthinkable 30 days ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, if, and not just here, but around the world. <laughs> correct. And, and, and if you, if we can do that, uh, that unthinkable act in unison, like we appear to be doing a pretty good job of, Good Lord, we ought to be able to tackle some of these environmental challenges and social challenges and health challenges and education challenges. So I'm hoping in the spirit of momentum begets momentum, I think my hope is that we get a win, uh, a global win out of beating this virus and, and figuring out how to not only start, survive but to thrive. And on the heels of that win, uh, we'll look for the next one. Well, on, on that note, you, you wrote, I don't remember what I was reading, maybe Byron, some article, and you said the coronavirus epidemic has demonstrated the degree to which municipalities are on the front lines of American life and that cities and states are at risk of being an afterthought. So I would ask, and that was an extraction from a longer sentence, but I would ask what mechanism could the White House and Congress put in place to shore up cities and states? 
in your mind, in your view? Sure. I mean, at the time we wrote this article in, in Barron's, there was just $12.2 billion that had pulled, been pulled out of the municipal market in the early days of the economic crash here, sending yields and therefore cities' borrowing costs surging higher. So municipal credit ratings, you know, they're, they're more fragile than we'd all like to think. And as right. citizens lose their jobs and can't pay their water bills, for example, it impacts the city's ability to raise capital through bonds, and they become more reliant on state and federal grants, and no one wants that. You know, we want our cities to be strong. The opportunity here from a federal standpoint is we've been talking about some type of infrastructure stimulus or infrastructure action in this country for over a decade, and it's become the joke here in Washington, D.C. Both parties are aligned. Uh, why we can't get that this done is flabbergasts most rational thinking. Yeah. This, hey, let's the, the 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 article that we wrote in Barron's basically just says well, let's not let the a good crisis go to waste. If we're throwing two trillion dollar stimuluses out there. Why not toss in a stimulus for infrastructure that's designed to address the gaps in infrastructure spending that we all know we have. We don't need to study the problem anymore. Nobody's arguing about the, the information. And because of the federal government's borrowing cap capabilities in these times of, you know, treasury yields are below 1%, it seems like the right time to have federal borrowing lean in and take some of this burden off of municipalities and states. It's a massive jobs play, two and a half million jobs could be ignited right away just by closing the gap in the infrastructure needs that are currently unfunded. So we're hitting jobs and we're hitting making communities safer and more prosperous and more resilient in ways that corporations, corporate bailout, bailouts don't quite touch. Strengthening roads and bridges and water systems and emergency services and communication networks, they deliver a big economic boost while also leaving the country better prepared for the next threat. And the third reason is just having the federal government make these investments now lowers the overall cost of capital and shifts the tax burden away from the local residents who are struggling and putting more money in their pockets for much needed consumer spending while still providing the benefits on a national scale. Uh, and I share your view, and that was well said, I share your view that the we let the last crisis go to waste by not taking advantage of it in putting infrastructure investments in place, and here we are again. So if in light of the crisis that's going on today, is there anything you would do to your definition of infrastructure that perhaps you didn't have in the frontal lobes of your brain before the crisis that you do know? I, I do, and it's a great question, and thanks for asking it. I Listen, I think if we if we had an infrastructure stimulus that had a heavy reliance on two features, resilience and adaptation projects, much needed, and focusing federal dollars on outcomes, I think we would have real hope of doing a stimulus that would have material impact uh, that would be immediate, both immediate and long-lasting. So there, there, there are buckets of infrastructure projects that meet that bill. 
that meet that definition. And if you just take, for example, combined sewer systems, there are 722 cities with combined sewer systems in the United States. And by the way, none of those cities want their combined sewer systems. They, these are failed architectures from 150 years ago that didn't take into account the massive populations that we have in our urban centers, and they didn't take into account climate change. So when it rains more than 1.2 inches in a 48-hour period, these combined sewers can't handle that rain. We're having that those intense storms more frequently. And, and if we took the same amount of stimulus that we put to the airline industry, which I'm not suggesting was a bad thing, but that was a $50 billion bailout for the airline industry, we could just wipe out the combined sewer challenge in, this, you know, in, in the United States. We're, those combined sewer systems are pumping about 850 gallons of untreated wastewater uh, into local waterways around the United States. We could just be done with that at that same price tag, and it would improve our drinking water and our public safety and our pro property values and fishing and recreation economies and environmental quality for residents of 32 states. We could just be done with it. It's, it's almost a boring subject. We all know it's there. It's expensive. And we're looking for ways to throw stimulus to get jobs going. There's one just sitting right in front of us. And what's great about solving that particular problem from a resilience standpoint is one of the best solutions to address combined sewer systems is by putting in green infrastructure across the city. That's what most cities are doing. And and now we're starting to make friends with nature, right? Well, now we're saying, hey, maybe instead of paving everything and putting in more gray infrastructure solutions, instead of having that be our knee-jerk reaction, let's put a bunch of nature in, let nature absorb the stormwater and hold it and retain it uh, and do what nature does well instead of more gray infrastructure solutions. At the end of the day, nature re reduces risk. And um, throwing a lot of the stimulus dollars at more nature-based resilience projects, which is what municipalities want to be doing, it's what residents are asking for, would be smart. And the science backs it up. And here comes the opportunity to do it at scale. But so, so said another way. That is certainly one of those projects that solving the problem today with how you spend your money could actually be doing the right thing, not only in the short term, but in the long term. So you, you're going to reap benefits both immediately and over the long term and not create tomorrow's problem. And very seldom is that the case. Oftentimes, you're needing to spend money today to correct a problem, but in fact, in this case, it's not spending, it's actually investing at the same time, because you're going to get great returns in addition to fixing the immediate problems that we have. And I think the question I would have for you is, the eternal optimist that you are, do you really think in this crisis that the infrastructure bill one would go through and that it will be that forward-looking. And I know you have, um, I'm getting outside of your sure. <laughs> well, I'm asking you to read minds. Yeah. Um, well, they're I, I believe they're going to get it right one of these times. So let's start there. And so if they were to get it right now, uh, which I hope they will, and and as the optimist, I'm going to I'm going to hope every time. And here we sit at the precipice of when it might happen. 
but let's define what it would mean to get it right. Doing a, we, we, we're now, we've done a few of these stimuluses. So we've had the luxury of looking backwards and learning what works and what doesn't and doing a lot of very large infrastructure projects that are funding things like the big dig projects in Boston and in New York. Those are all phenomenal projects and they need to be greenlit. But there's also a need to deploy some federal stimulus funds to do some innovative public-private partnerships or outcomes-based financial models like the projects that Quantified Ventures works on, or investing in nonprofit programs that support infrastructure planning and development like what Moonshot Missions does, phenomenal organization that's working uh, across the water industry to bring solutions to underserved communities and uh, water and wastewater facilities with resource and tools for success. But the other element that we would love to see as part of that stimulus is some pre-development funds. That's the thing that didn't happen the last time. Because there was this scramble for shovel-ready projects for political reasons, yep. it, it, we, we ended up just doing the obvious business-as-usual projects. And in the face of climate change, no municipality is thinking business as usual anymore, meaning they're, they're doing more green infrastructure because they like the positive externalities associated with those type of solutions as opposed to just another gray infrastructure solution. So forcing them to do business as usual instead of innovative projects like green infrastructure would be a mistake here and be contrary to what boots on the ground municipalities are thinking. They're more sophisticated than that now. But they'll need some pre-development money for each one of these sort of resilience projects, whether you're doing a green seawall down in Miami or you're, you're developing, you're building wetlands off the coastline of Louisiana to slow down the degradation of the coastline there, or you're building green infrastructure in Atlanta to address flooding issues in low-income neighborhoods. Those projects, because we're, we as a species are new to those type of engineering projects, they take more pre-development funds to get the innovative financing to work and to get the projects moving to scale. And if we don't provide the pre-development funds through the stimulus, we'll see more business as usual projects than the innovative projects that citizens across the country are demanding from their municipalities. Interesting. And I agree with you. And it's always about shovel-ready because, as you said, it's all about the next election. And I want to show results. And often, as we know, the, the problems that are solved as short-term or viewed through a lens as being a short-term problem tend not to be very transformational but they are done because they need to happen within an election cycle to show results. And so the things that take a, lot, a little longer usually go undone because by the time they're brought to fruition, you're out of office and the other person is taking credit for it. And so you know, a lot of our decisions, unfortunately, get made inside of that paradigm. It, it makes me wonder. So if you did you read recently Rhode Island? comments, the governor there talked about being only weeks away, not months, from running out of cash as a result of COVID-19. And so given that, there is a tension 
that's going to arise as people think about what do I need to do and I need to be re-elected. I'm short on cash. I need to do the things that are most visible in the near term. And therefore, there's one side of the decision tree that pushes you towards doing those short-term projects. And if you don't have significant federal funding, the longer-term projects that take higher have longer incubation periods and pre-development periods won't ever get done and we'll be back where we started. So I think there's a lot to be said that this is a unique opportunity given that the federal government understands the need to grease the skids, that if we don't do it now, we'll lose more than just this little window. We will lose a lifetime of significant advancement that we could be making. Yeah. I, I did. I did. I did see that statement, and um, I remember reading it and thinking that Rhode Island governor is not alone, right? That's that that's that's there are 50, 49 other governors around the United States, and and finance departments in every city, and mayors who are wringing their hands with fewer and fewer levers at their disposal. Um, to make this change, and so that to your point that that creates the opportunity. Sadly, one of the first things that happens when governments find themselves in these crises is the first thing that gets tossed off the boat uh, is innovation. And for exactly the reason you're describing, we become very short-term focused, and projects that have big-time future upside that start to show promise for that upside outside of the cycle of this crisis, those projects tend to get shuttered. And and it's quite, it's understandable from a human perspective. I, I get that sure. instinct, sure. but it's 100% counter to what we need from our public leaders at this time. And this is the, this is the time to double down on innovation, frankly, and, and not set our sights on, on mere survival short-term survival, we've got to be looking, to your point, uh, a year ahead and two years ahead and a couple decades ahead. You know, when, you're, when your football team's down by down with 30 seconds left in the game and you got 80, 80 long yards ahead of them, it's, <laughs> it's rarely the time to be handing the ball off to you know, go for a couple, a couple yards here and there. It's time to go to the back pages of the playbook. Yeah, it's and, um, Exactly, exactly. So, so Eric, I think I know the answer, and, and this is probably the last question, but I'll leave it more as an opportunity for you to just speak to it. I assume that given some of the things you said at different points in this um, interview and discussion, uh, I assume you believe that public-private partnerships, one, because it brings more resources to the table and perhaps because of skills as well, that public-private partnerships will and should be playing a major role in any one of these in, inside of an infrastructure strategy, right? Infrastructure. I, I, I do. I do. I, I've, my whole career has been, I've spent a third of my career running uh, government agencies at the municipal level. I've spent a third of my career in the private sector, a third of my career in the nonprofit sector. And, and, and the work that I've done throughout my career has always been at the intersection where each of those three sectors is able to bring what they're really good at. 
to address big problems. And I think that's that's what's needed. Uh, this is not a public sector won't get us out of this into where we're going. And the private sector won't alone get us out of this, nor would the NGO community. But I do believe that when each of those three sectors brings is allowed to bring what they're really great at and perhaps able to leave behind what they're not so great at, that's when we see, back to the football analogy, that's when we see the Hail Marys connect and those playbooks and those plays from the back end of the playbook uh, really start to resolve. I mean, at the moment, like I said, treasury yields are at one or below 1%, making federal borrowing as cheap as it ever has been. So not only does including infrastructure in this federal stimulus ensure that the projects can be funded, uh, but it does so in a way that is vastly more efficient than leaving it to the localities to deal with. And by bringing in the private sector to do what it does well, um, and return outcomes to municipalities as opposed to laying all the problems at the government's feet and expecting them to solve them. And pay with, because frankly, the tools that they have at their disposal uh, enable them to pay for work ahead of time and frankly, hope for the best, but instead take those resources, let the private sector owns, own the delivery of some of those outcomes and have the government buy outcomes instead of buying process and paying for every, and being forced to pay for everything on the upfront. Uh, let that private sector take some of that risk off the public sector's shoulders and enabling those stewards of public funds, those public sector leaders to buy from the public private sector what citizens actually want, which is outcomes. Excellent. Very well said. A good punctuation to this um, to this podcast. Let me say I very much appreciate this. And on a personal note, you know, I tend to think that I have some level of optimism. You can't do community development without thinking about life is going to be better 20 years down the road. But I must admit I'm often guilty of getting disheartened at times. And this conversation has increased my level of optimism, one, because of how you express it, but two, you truly do do that sense of confidence that we will do the right thing eventually. And so maybe that's what I need to hang on to is that ultimately we all want the same thing. We just have different short-term drivers that may distract us from making the right long-term decisions. So. Thank you very, very much for this. Well, Agbert, it's been a true pleasure, and thank you sincerely for including me in your podcast. I'm a big fan of your work, and I wish you the very best, and I let's agree to call this the beginning of a long conversation. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Create the Village is produced by Rick White, directed and edited by Brennan Robison. Create the Village is a production of The Integral Group, LLC. Copyright The Integral Group, 2020.